Amen. It's been a little while since we've been in the book of Acts. I want to remind you, we're calling this series Acts 0 to 60 because the book of Acts gives us an inspired record of the first 60 years of the church's existence from her birth in Acts chapter 2 in the day of Pentecost event. And right up until today, we are still the church that was birthed in Acts 2. And uh, the first 60 years of the church's life has been chronicled and recorded for us in the book of Acts. And we've seen so many wonderful things. We've seen that the church first assembled in Jerusalem. And then as the Spirit of God came and infilled the believers there in Jerusalem, empowered them to share their faith in Christ, that the church began to spread beyond Jerusalem into Judea, the surrounding province around the city of Jerusalem, and then even into Gentile country into Samaria and other Gentile parts. And as we jump back into the story in Acts chapter 15, we jump into the story because there became a debate within the young church as to what is how, how are you saved? Are you saved simply by having faith in Jesus Christ, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile? Or do Gentiles who come to faith in this Christ have to obey the Mosaic law, including circumcision for the males, in order to be saved and to be sanctified? So there was a debate raging even in the young church about theology and doctrine. And we're coming in in chapter 15 of Acts and verse 12 to see how that debate went and how God sovereignly steered those at a council that was convened in Jerusalem about this debate and therefore it shaped the whole future history of the church down to the today that we know Christ as the church in 2023. And so before we get to verses 12 to 18 of Acts 15, which are our focus in this sermon, I want to review with you, since we've been a little separated from the last time we preached, the first 11 verses of chapter 15. I hope you'll recall that when the first 11 verses of chapter 15 were shared, that we noted seven things. Seven things that can help us better understand ourselves, and seven things that can help us better view others. And those seven things we learned in the first 11 verses of chapter 15 are the following. Grace does not sit well with some religious persons. Two, legalistic error is serious to God. Three, spiritually mature and appointed church leaders are to settle debated matters of doctrinal dispute and false teaching. Four, we learned that inside housekeeping ought not to derail joyous testimony. As the delegates went to Jerusalem for this council with a theological debate raging, as they made their way to Jerusalem back from Gentile country, they reported what God had done in the hearts of Gentiles in the Gentile territories. They didn't stop praising God because they had to convene together to settle a matter of doctrinal debate. We also have seen in the first 11 verses of chapter 15 that salvation history is the biggest picture, and we should consider the biggest picture when we look at the minutia detail. The biggest picture is that God has entered human history in the person of his son in the incarnation miracle that took Christ to the cross to die in the place of sinners like all of us, and God is redeeming for himself a people for his own name and glory, a people made up of Jewish believers in Christ and Gentile believers in Christ. We call it the church. And salvation history is the biggest paradigm that we must keep before us when we see the other details that are conveyed to us in God's word or circumstantially in the experiences of our own individual redeemed lives. We also learn in the first 11 verses that legalism puts God on trial. We learned that when people want to revert to keeping the law to make you right with God, it's really calling God into question about whether the idea of salvation by grace through faith is actually proper. And so persons who are legalists who want to drag themselves and others around them back to being right with God only by keeping the Mosaic law are really putting God on trial and saying, as it were, to God, I'm not so sure this grace thing is a good idea, God. That's serious. We also saw in the first 11 verses that grace, God's riches at Christ's expense, the benefits, the good things that God lavishes upon the believer and his son, grace levels the playing field when it comes to salvation. You could be the richest person in this country or the most poor. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. 
And so we can come and we must come to that cross and the Savior on that cross to be saved. We noted in the past as well that legalism, adding or subtracting anything from the finished work of Christ to make us right with God, legalism has a lot of problems. We saw in the last message that legalism is a yoke which is much harder to bear than Christ's yoke. We saw that legalism sees God's grace as being outrageous. The legalistic person is outraged at what God's grace can do to bring a rebel, reprobate person into God's family, loved and adopted and forgiven and used for God's glory. We've seen that legalism is really striving to do-it-yourself acceptance to God. We saw previously that legalism either feeds a person's pride or it makes a person discouraged to the point of even wanting to give up on trying to be a Christian. Legalism either puffs you up in pride or it tears you down and wears you down that you're not even sure you're going to keep trying to live a Christian life. Legalism is a serious matter. Legalism, we've learned, insists that the hard and heavy yoke of the Mosaic law must be carried by a person. And legalism is really the worldview that the older brother had in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. You remember when the prodigal left the farm with his inheritance, wasted all his inheritance on riotous living, came back in repentance to the farm and his dad. And his dad embraced him, ran to him when he was still afar off, put a ring on him, put a robe on him, had a barbecue to welcome him home. And the older brother, when he saw the festivities, when he saw the celebration of the father to forgive a wayward son who'd come back in repentance and humility, the older brother was the legalist when he said, I've been slaving for you on this farm for years and you've never had a barbecue in my honor. Legalism is that worldview that the older brother had in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. And so in light of these things that we have learned in a previous message, we raise some important questions we must ask oneself. And the questions are these. To whom... Or to what am I yoked? I told you there's a time in my Christian life when I really doubted in my heart of hearts if God's yoke was easy and Christ's burden was light because I didn't feel they were either uh, easy or light. But someone challenged me and said, Rob, to whom are you yoked? Are you yoked to the Lord Jesus or are you yoked to other people's expectations? Are Are you yoked to yourself, Rob? To whom are you yoked, Christian? Jesus says, my burden is light. My yoke is easy. Second question we must ask ourselves as believers is more often than not, typically, do I feel hard done by or blessed beyond what I deserve? The Christian who perpetually tends to see him or herself as being hard done by is the Christian who has eased their way into legalism. The Christian who is basking in the grace of God, saving them and keeping them saved, is the Christian who, when asked, how are you doing, often says, better than I deserve. That's how I'm doing. I'm blessed beyond measure in Christ. So the question, to whom or to what am I yoked? The question, Typically, do I find myself feeling hard done by or blessed beyond what I deserve? And third question to ask oneself, do I like to give out grace as much as I like to receive grace? Because the legalist will take God's grace, but they do not give God's grace to other people. They want to compare themselves against other people and always see themselves as being more favorable or spiritual or better than the persons to whom they compare themselves? These are important questions that I trust. If you've not heard them before, you'll think about now. And if you've heard them before and they're brought back to your memory, you will consider these questions in your heart of hearts, alone with your Savior in his word. Now, to set the stage for looking at verses 12 to 18 of chapter 15, I want to summarize in a very fast fashion uh, verses 
6 to 11 of chapter 15. Ready? What's happened in those verses is that Paul and Barnabas had been sent to a council meeting in Jerusalem. And the council was convened to pass judgment on the notion, on the theory, on the belief that Gentile believers in Christ had to keep all the Jewish law in order to be saved and they had to adhere to the Jewish law in order to be sanctified. That was the debate. One party said, no, it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The other Judaizers in that party said, no, you got to add all the keeping of the Mosaic law to what Christ has done, and that's how you're a Christian, and that's how you're going to grow to be more like Christ. It was a big debate. In those verses, we've also seen that the apostles, eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ, and the elders made up the council in Jerusalem. That's in verse 6. And we see in verse 7 of this chapter that much dispute arose in this council. And Peter, according to verse 7, Peter addressed the apostles and the elders in the church of Jerusalem at this council. Peter made the following points in his addressing the council. Number one, Peter made the point that God chose him to take the gospel to the Gentiles so that they would believe on Christ. That's what he said in verse 7. Second, Peter raised to the council, God gave believing Gentiles new hearts and cleansed hearts and the Holy Spirit to live in them as converts. That's the points made in verses 8 and 9. But Peter didn't stop there. He told the council that in these main matters, the Lord made no distinction between believing Jews and believing Gentiles. We read of that in verse 9. Peter didn't stop there. He told the council, if Jews can't keep the law, and they couldn't, he asked, why should Jews require that Gentiles keep the law? He asked that good question in verse 10. And Peter went on to say that it is the Lord's grace that saves all who are saved. He said that truth in verse 11. And so now we're ready to jump into verses 12 to 18 with those backgrounds understood. So please follow in your Bibles as I'm reading from Acts 15, verses 12 to 18. I'm reading from the New King James Version. Hear the word of God. Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon, that's the name of Peter, Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, here's a quote from the prophet Amos, after this, God said through the prophet Amos, after this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins. I will set it up so that the rest of mankind, that would be the Gentiles, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does all these things. Verse 18. Powerful verse. Known to God from eternity are all his works. If I marked my Bible, I would mark verse 18. Known to God from eternity are all his works. These are the verses before our attention this morning. And two truths, at least two truths, jump out at us from these verses that I have read. Number one, Wise persons kept silent. Wise persons kept silent at that council. And number two, the all-wise God has always known what he's doing. Do you believe that? The all-wise God has always known what he's doing. Let's take these two separately and consider them together. First, point one. Wise persons kept 
silent. Back in that council, when it convened and there was doctrinal debate about legalism or free grace salvation, wise parties at that council went silent and they listened. Verse 12, again, then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. The silence on that occasion at that council was significant enough that it's mentioned a second time in verse 13. And after they had become silent, if I mark my Bible, I would mark became silent. And after they had become silent, James answered saying, men and brethren, listen to me, because guess what? When we are silent, we are better listeners. And so the wise person back then at the Council of Jerusalem kept silent. And the wise believer in Calvary Bible Church, or anywhere else for that matter, knows the wisdom and the benefit of keeping silent to hear God. Because, of course, silence is so important because silence is one of the best friends to good listening. Listening is mentioned twice with regard to the silence. Verse 12, then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul. Verse 13, and after they had become silent, James answered saying, good listening is possible with good discipline to keep silent. Silence. And listening to coming to understand what needs to be understood are best friends. They hang out together. Siamese twins. Listening. Being silent. Being silent. Listening. I just wonder in my own life, am I silent enough? Maybe you ask yourself the same question, believer. Am I disciplined enough to be silent enough to hear God's will from my life amid all the other surrounding noise that competes for our attention and our mental processes. You've heard it said, as have I, we have two ears and one mouth, meaning we should listen twice as much as what we say, and that's true. But we also have two ears and one mind And listening is an important way to let our mind experience new things, truthful things that we need to know. Before he was thrust into the presidency by the assassination of John Fitzgerald Kennedy, President Lyndon Baines Johnson had a sign in his office which read, he was from Texas, You ain't learning nothing when you're talking. That is true. We are learning nothing when we're talking. We should do less talking and more listening. And those at the Jerusalem Council, thank God, listened because they were party to some very theologically huge concepts at that point in the church's history. Very big, immense theological debates that were going to shape the whole direction, the whole vector of the church of Jesus Christ forever. Was it going to be a church driven by law-keeping as the Judaizers wanted, or would it be a church characterized by the grace of God in Jesus Christ? Huge, huge debate, huge question, huge divergence between the directions the church of Christ could have gone out of that Jerusalem council. Thank God that the parties to that council went silent to listen to God's spokesman who told them what God was doing in the field, in the Gentile country, and in the Gentile Believers' hearts. Thank God they listened. And thank God by listening to what God was saying through the apostles, through his missionaries to the Gentiles, they sorted out truth from error. 
And they took the church under the Holy Spirit's leadership down the road of grace and not down the road of legalism. Thank God. It was American writer, reporter, and political commentator Walter Lippmann who said, and I quote, many a time I have wanted to stop talking and find out what I really believed. There's a lot of insight in that. Walter Lippmann saying, many a times I wish I'd shut my mouth down long enough to understand in my own heart and mind what I actually believed instead of what I was just always talking. Silence sorts. Silence sorts. Right from wrong. Truth from error. Orthodoxy from heresy. Silence sorts. Two of the things which those persons at the Jerusalem Council heard well when they silenced themselves was number one, God had been doing confirming miracles and wonders among the Gentiles. That's what verse 12 reports. And those who silenced themselves at the council heard a second thing well. They heard a quote from the prophet Amos, chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, and that prophet Amos quote cited by the churches of Jerusalem's leader James, and essentially the quote from the prophet Amos, excuse me, essentially makes the point back then and down to this day, Listen to the point of Amos. Gentile salvation is a part of God's plan for Israel. Always has been, always will be. That part of God's salvation plan for Israel is that Gentiles, like the most of us hearing this sermon, also get in on that salvation plan through Christ. Amen? Jonah didn't understand that. <laughs> Jewish runaway prophet Jonah didn't want the grace of God or the salvation of God to get to the Gentiles in Assyria living in the city of Nineveh. He hated them. He feared them. He wanted to make God's salvation and God's forgiveness just a Jewish thing. And so he jumped on a boat to go the opposite direction from Nineveh, try to run away from God. You can't run away from God. But the point that is quoted from the prophet Amos here in Acts chapter 15 that was cited by James, the leader of the Jerusalem church at the council in the first century in the Jerusalem churches, Amos said that God said that salvation coming to the Gentiles is part of God's plan of getting salvation to the Jews. It's not either or. It's both and. The church of Jesus Christ is not just a Jewish thing. And the church of Jesus Christ is not just a Gentile thing. The church of Jesus Christ is a believer thing. All who believe in Christ and are born again are part of the church. That's the point. And it was so very good that the multitude at the Jerusalem Council silenced themselves enough in order to carefully listen to what God was saying through the apostles. Because what they properly heard at that council were the facts which caused them to go in the right direction for the church, the direction of grace, and to reject the wrong direction for the church of legalism. Now, there are segments of the church of Jesus Christ who have reverted to legalism. We could name them if we took time, which I won't. But that's not the road of the scriptures. That's not the road of Christ. The law was good to point out our need of Christ, but none of us can be justified by keeping the law because none of us keep all of the law. We need the grace of God so desperately. And the Jerusalem Council listened and learned that God was doing a mighty work among the Gentiles. And God wasn't just saving believing Jews, but God was saving believing Gentiles. And God wasn't just giving his Holy Spirit to believing Jews. He gave his Holy Spirit to believing Gentiles. And God wasn't just doing confirming sign miracles among believing Jews. He was doing confirming sign miracles among believing Gentiles. I'm so glad they listened. I'm so glad they were quiet enough 
to hear God's truth and not human opinion when it came to something as important as the gospel, something as important as how a person is saved, something as important as how a person is sanctified after salvation. I'm so grateful they listened. How's your listening? How is my listening? It's crucial that we remain quiet enough to hear God's truths from his word. Are we quiet enough? You know, there are many examples in scripture of the appropriateness of silence. I think of the severely judged people of Judah who waited in desolation and in silence, hoping for God's deliverance. We read of them in Lamentations 3, verse 26. Theirs was a silence of prayer. Or I think of the prophet Zechariah, who called the Jews to future silence in light of the fact that God will one day rule on earth. Zechariah 2, verse 13. That will be the silence of reverence. Or I think how God silenced Zechariah for his unbelief about his promised son, John the Baptist. Luke 1, verse 20. That was the silence of temporary judgment from God. Or I think of the time when Jesus' mother Mary silenced herself to contemplate the virgin birth and to contemplate the challenge of raising the God-man Jesus. We read of that silence in Luke 2, verse 51. Hers was the silence of worship, the silence of wonder at the will of God. Are we silent enough? And in the chapter before us, chapter 15 of Acts, verses 12 to 17, the multitude who were present at the Jerusalem council silenced themselves so they could hear Barnabas and Paul's testimonies to the Lord's miracle workings among the Gentiles. And they heard James, the leader of the Jerusalem church, they heard his theological interpretation that those miracles evidenced among believing Gentiles were proof that Gentile salvation is included in God's plan of salvation. Acts 15, 12 to 17. This was a silence of openness to the truth. Or I think of the future scene depicted for us in Revelation chapter 8, verse 1. That future silent time in heaven for about half an hour after Christ breaks the seventh seal which will unleash the trumpet judgments on earth's vegetation and seas and waters and sun and moon and stars. That will be a silence of being awestruck at God. Oh, there are plenty of examples in scripture of appropriate silences. Now, in thinking about this in my own life, in thinking about this, the beauty and the necessity of silence, It strikes me that we are not actually silent with our mouths and our minds, even when we seem to be silent. What do I mean by that? Ever tried to talk to somebody who's listening to earbuds? They're silent, but their head is not silent, and they don't hear you if you don't speak up. Someone listening to earbuds or scrolling and surfing on our devices. We may not be saying anything, but we are not silent of mouth and mind. Or watching television or listening to the radio or, or, here's a good one, mentally formulating an answer to a person's comment that you're in a dialogue with on the fly in live time. Nothing may be coming out of our mouths when the other person is talking to us, but in our heads, we're not silent. We're not listening. We're formulating what we're going to say when they stop talking. That's a big one. And so often, in our hustle and bustle and multimedia-faced times, we seem like we're silent, but we're not really silent. Our mouths are not in mesh and coordination with our minds in a silent posture or mode. We're still noisy. Even though nothing may be coming out of our mouths, we're still noisy and we're not listening. 
We're not listening to God and we're not listening to the people God's put into our lives. And so we live in a chronically noisy day. And because we do, each of us has to ask ourselves, am I silent enough? Can I live without the radio on? Can I get by in my house without the TV as the background theme music? Can I unplug my device to spend time with God? Can I put my phone down at a meal so my spouse can talk to me and I will listen? Am I silent enough? And am I silent enough to hear from God? The most important communicator there is, God. Am I silent enough to appropriately be prayerful? Am I silent enough to appropriately be reverent? Am I silent enough to appropriately be worshipful? Am I silent enough to be appropriately teachable? Am I silent enough to be appropriately awestruck with God? Are you silent enough? I've been asking myself that question this week and concluding, I need to be more silent. Again, we praise God these centuries later that the attendees at the Jerusalem Council went silent enough to hear what Barnabas and Paul and James were saying because that's how the fledging church went forward in God's grace and not encumbered and chained down by God's legalism, the twisting of God's law to make it a hairbrush when it was meant to be a mirror to show you that your hair is messy, the law not ever intending to make your hair straight but the law in its good purpose, in a mirror to show us our shortcomings before God's character and laws so that we would run to Christ in desperation and faith, humility and trust to receive the grace offered to us in the blood of Christ. The wise kept silent back at the Jerusalem council and the wise still keep silent for enough times today. And that second point of the two, not only do the wise keep silent, but the second point from these verses is that the all-wise God has always known what he's doing. The all-wise God has always known what he's doing. Verse 18, known to God from eternity are all his works. Known to God from all eternity are all his works. Now think with me. Our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our triune God is eternal. That means he has no beginning. That means he has no ending. He always has existed, self-existed, and he always will self-exist. That means he created time, but he is over time. He rules and reigns over time, which he has created. And the past is as equally vivid to this eternal God as is the present. And to God, the present is as equally vivid as is the future. And so this God who we know and who knows us. It's known to this God from eternity, all his works. God only has a plan A. Because when we disobey him, it doesn't force him to any plan B. Because he knew in advance from eternity past where and how we would disobey him. And he's planned our lives accordingly to bring glory to his name through our disobedience as we repent and to bring good to us as we repent. And he's charted each of our individual ways from eternity past, knowing all his ways from eternity past. No one's ever informed God of anything. So God knew all about Adam and Eve before he made either one of them. What was going to happen? He planned for it. God knew all about the selection of Israel, not because they were 
righteous in and of themselves, but because of God's divine choice, he made the nation out of Abraham's progeny. He knew all about Joseph being sold into Egyptian slavery by his evil and mean brothers and how they meant it for harm, but God from eternity past met their sin against their brother for good to bring food to the famine-ravished world through Joseph's wisdom to store up food when there was crops for the time when famine would hit the earth. And Joseph was used of God by storehousing that food that he kept his own father and his siblings that betrayed him with food. Oh yes, our God, known to God from eternity are all his works. Put another way, God's will in any matter is never frustrated. What God chooses to do, he accomplishes. Like Gentile salvation being included in the overall plan of God's salvation for the world. Now, think with me. For God's will never to be frustrated, at least three things must be true of God. For God's will never, ever to be frustrated or stopped, at least three things have to be true of the triune God. They are, he must know what is to be done. Number two, he must be willing to do it. And number three, he must have ability to do what is to be done. God must know what is to be done, check. God must be willing for it to be done, check. God must have the ability to do what is to be done, check. And so we have a verse 18 as a jewel shimmering off the pages of our Bibles. Known to God from eternity are all his works. What a truth to grab hold of. Known to God from all eternity are all his works. You can go to bed and sleep with that. That can be a sleeping pill at night. That can dab your tears over a prodigal child. That can buoy and fortress you in a troubled marriage. That can fortify you at a grave to receive your loved one's casket. Known to God from eternity are all his works. Let's theologically consider verse 18 and its parts. Known to God from eternity are all his works. God, the whole concept of God, he's living, he's personal, he has intellect, emotion, and will. He has volitional choice, he is all wise, he is perfectly good. All of his attributes are in perfect harmony at all times. He is the one, this God is the one who has the ultimate plan. And he's had that plan from eternity past. He's not ever fumbling around in heaven trying to react to something we say or do. God. The verse says, known to God. Yeah, that's right. Because God is omniscient. Omni and science. God has all the knowledge there is to have. He's exalted. He is infinite. He is unsearchable. God cannot be taught anything. From eternity, the verse says, without a beginning, God is eternal. Without an ending, God is eternal. And not only is he uncreated and eternal, but this God is immutable. He doesn't change. He's he's immutable. It says all of his works. The verse says, known to God from eternity are all his works. That means he must be sovereign, the boss, large, and in charge. That means he must be providential. He must bring into the circumstances of our individual lives in a nation's life. He brings those circumstances to pass to accomplish his plan. But he's not just sovereign. He's not just providential. He's omnipotent. All the power there is to have, God possesses in himself. No one loans him any power. He lacks no power. He is all power. 
the one who decrees, the one who promises, the one who judges, known to God from eternity are all his works. The all-wise God, your God, has always known what he's doing. Of course, unlike us, who are very finite, our God is infinite. And unlike us finite humans, infinite God has always known everything. Verse 18, known to God from eternity are all his works. This is truth. This is not open theism. Open theism is the travesty, the theological heresy that believes some crazy lies about God. And open theism isn't just showing its face in ivory towers of academia and seminaries, although it is doing that, but it's filtering its way down to the common person like you and me. Listen to what people who are open theists, claiming to be Bible-believing Christians, what these people believe about God. And I'll tell you right now, the God that they believe in is not God. It's some figment of their prideful imaginations. Because open theism believes the following falsehoods. Wicked falsehoods. This is what open theism believes. Number one, God has no foresight of the future because the future is unknowable even to him. But they say God is still omniscient. That is a logical inconsistency. How can God be all-knowing and not know the future? Ask an open theist. That's what they believe. Number two, the open theist believes that God God can and God does change his mind. They believe that God learns. They believe that God makes mistakes. They believe that God takes risks and he doesn't know how it's going to turn out. Imagine praying to that kind of a God. The open theist believes a lie that God does not have perfect, complete, infinite knowledge of the future. Therefore, they believe that God can only have limited accuracy in all of his prophecies about the future you find in the Bible. The open theist says if God can't know the future and they believe that he can't, that any predictions he's made of prophecies in his Bible, you can't really count on them. He could be wrong. The timing of Jesus' return, the millennial kingdom, the judgment day, the future destruction of Satan, etc., etc. The open theist thinks that's all up for grabs because God doesn't really know the future, they say. Well, there's more. The open theist says there are certain tragic events which occur over which God has no control. And when these things do occur, they believe that God should not be blamed because he was unable to prevent them from occurring and he did not will or cause them to occur. God doesn't need our help or our explanation. But I know that's a lie. They also believe, the open theist does, that God is love. Yes, he is. They believe that God is love and he may be trusted always to do the best to offer guidance to the intended to serve others' well-being. However, this is the problem. However, God sometimes realizes that his guidance may have inadvertently and unexpectedly led to unwanted hardship and suffering. Can you imagine praying to a God that you believe has an eraser on his pencil because he did something in a person's life that was a mistake? Almost as if he has to apologize to the person for that? It's not God. But that's what open theists would tell you God is. is. Open theists say that at times, God may repent. God may repent of his own past actions, realizing that his choices have not worked out well. And that because his choices haven't worked out well, that they've led to unexpected hardship. And in retrospect, may not have been the best. God can second guess himself. God can conclude 
that what he did in the past was a mistake, big mistake, that he needs to repent of. This is not God. This is not the God of the Bible. This is not the God of reality. This is heresy. This is a, this is a denial of verse 18. This is a slapping of verse 18 in its face because verse 18 asserts correctly and emphatically the following. Known to God from eternity are all his works. That's truth. That's the God you trust. That's the God at work in your life. That's the God you can stake your time and your eternity on. He doesn't have an eraser on his pencil. He has a plan. And he's known that plan from eternity past. That's the true God. And the truth about our true God is that he's all wise. And he always known, he's always known what he's doing. And he never has his will frustrated. And the true God chooses to do what he chooses to do in wisdom and love and justice and grace and mercy. The truth about God is that he knows what he wants to do at all times. And he's willing to do those things. And he's able to do all those things. God is living, God is personal, God has intellect, emotion, and will. God is volitional, he is all wise and perfectly good. God is all of his attributes in perfect harmony at all times. God is the one who has made the ultimate plan for the church, for history, for your life, for your family. God is the one who has made the ultimate plan in all these regards. And he's never gonna say, oops, I got that one wrong. Never. God is omniscient. He knows everything, and he is exalted. God is infinite, and God is unsearchable. God is eternal, and God is immutable. He never changes. God is sovereign and providential and omnipotent. He has all power. God never apologizes to anyone. God never goes back to the drawing board. known to God from eternity are all his works. The all-wise God always has known what he's doing. And according to Psalm 115, verse 3, our God in heaven, he does whatever he pleases. He doesn't take a vote he doesn't put out a suggestion box. He doesn't say, accept my will if you think it's good, and if it's not, I'll change my will. Our God is in heaven, and he does whatever he pleases. And so based on the verses before us this morning, we've learned at least two important things. The Jerusalem Council experience teaches us at least two important things. Number one, wise persons know when to keep silent. And number two, our all-wise God always has known what he's doing. Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked among them, among the Gentiles. And after they had become silent, James answered saying, men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his own name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things, known to God from eternity are all his works. Aren't you glad? And I'm so very glad and grateful to God 
that at the fork in the road, the church roughly 40 years old, when the fork of the road presented itself, and people who believed in Jesus wanted to make the church entirely Jewish, following the Mosaic Old Testament law for salvation and for sanctification, that at the fork of that road, God caused a holy hush to come across that council so that Paul and Barnabas and James could speak the truth about the heart of God, about the way of salvation and the way of sanctification. I'm so very grateful that from the Jerusalem Council on to today, we say that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. What a different church it would be if we were allowed to be pulled under legalistic error as far back as that council. Heavenly Father, we rejoice in who you are today. We confess we don't know much of anything, really. We don't know what's going to happen this afternoon. But we confess and affirm what the Bible says of you, Lord, that known to you from eternity are all of your works. And we rest in that fact. Thank you. You have no plan B. Thank you. You have no drawing board which to go back to. Thank you. You have no eraser on your pencil. Thank you that you're good and perfect and wise in all of your ways. We just fall into your arms, Heavenly Father, in faith, believing in your goodness and your grace, secure in who you are and who you've made us to be in your Son. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.